Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Yes Over Yes. Uh, I think I'm, I've not got high hopes for this one, to be honest, Paul. Wow. Start on a high note. Why not? I, I think this one's going to be amazing. No, it's firstly, I've got a slight hangover. Oh, right. So okay. I'm already, I'm not on the ball. That doesn't narrow the day down. <laughs> Every other day of the week. And... I've, I've tried to, I've got like a Shakespeare fact this week. Oh. And I know like how much you know about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I thought, is this a risk? Is this a massive risk I'm taking with Ooh, this Shakespeare I'm, fact? Now I see I'm looking forward to this now. I'm, I'm not going to do it first because if you do know it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> can embrace me for it. It'll be like a really short <laughs> three minute segment. <laughs> i to stop you. Thanks for listening to the Yes OBS, everybody. <laughs> right. So okay. I've got a hangover. Um, right. I've got a Shakespeare fact. Right. And before you came over, I saw one magpie, which is bad luck. Oh. So now, I've, I've, you're sort of slightly superstitious about magpies, aren't you? Oh, always. I always. Do you salute them and say, morning, Captain? No, I go, oh, it's a magpie. And I, I walk on, <laughs> hello, Captain. What's wrong with you? I'm sure that's what people say to magpies. I isn't thought it? you just had to say, hello, Mr. Magpie. You've promoted them to Captain. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, what goes on in your brain? Have you got a whole sort of regiment of birds? <laughs> like if you well, see an albatross, you say, hello, Major General. Well, something. that's more of a Lieutenant General, oh, I'd right. say. Oh, well, yes, um, yes, more maritime. A field Marshal would be an ostrich, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I knew this was going to go off the rails today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, that's the first two minutes are wasted. <laughs> <laughs> so, should we just launch straight into it then, yeah. Paul? Yeah, okie doke. So... My first fact, mm-hmm. we are travelling to the state of Wisconsin. As you might know, a famous fact, they're known as cheeseheads. Oh, I didn't know that. I know that it's they make a lot of cheese, but it's oh, someone from you... Wisconsin is called a cheese. Yeah, head. it's like a nickname for Wisconsinites. Is that how you say it? Is that would be a person yeah, from Wisconsin? Yeah, it's like the fans of, oh, I forget the name of the football team now. It's just, again, oh, I've, look I've, who you're talking to. We've, I've wandered off into sports again. Yeah, <laughs> true. We'll, we'll pull ourselves straight back. But I want to tell you about a famous cheese sculptor in Wisconsin. Okay. She is called Sarah Kaufman, the cheese lady. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, she oh, wears, already I'm she, intrigued. She wears a top hat made of cheese. Right. And she's famous throughout Wisconsin for her amazing cheese sculptures. Okay. Would you like some cheese facts about some of her sculptures? This, this is the second time we've done lists of cheese facts. <laughs> yeah, I would love some not cheese facts. That, I'm clutching at straws. <laughs> cheese straws? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, there are over 600 different cheeses produced in Wisconsin. And she's been sculpting. Her preferred cheese is the Wisconsin cheddar. Okay. And she's been sculpting for 17 years. Eight years full time. <laughs> So she's making she's making a good living out of this. Nine years part time. What was she doing alongside it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It, I making didn't, cheese. I, I didn't research that part. So some facts about the cheese. She's in the Guinness Book of Records for cheese carving. Would you take a guess how big the biggest block of cheese is that they make in Wisconsin <laughs> that she can work with? This is this is the sound of us hemorrhaging <laughs> the biggest block of cheese ever produced in wisconsin was are, are we talking like comparative size or like the actual facts and figures actual facts and figures just the weight <clears throat> of a block of cheese weight mm. oh because i was going to go on like cubic feet or something weight mm. um two tons i've got it in kilograms oh my god <laughs> i don't know how that is in tons <laughs> but one of the largest blocks was 4536 kilograms that's a big block of cheese. Or 10,000 pounds for our wow. American listeners. 
And she's carved all sorts of things out of these massive blocks of cheese. Um, she's done Lean Tower of Pisa. She's done a giant astronaut that went on display in a museum somewhere. Right. And that, that then melted and the head fell off. But, but, <laughs> but that one was made of Derry Lee, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, the astronaut was six foot tall as well. A six foot tall cheese astronaut. Yes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, wow, Anthony's hung over today. He's just, he's cobbled together any old I'm bollocks. thinking you've taken a tab of acid before I got here. <laughs> And actually, when the sculptures are finished, they can be used as decorative pieces that people can eat at parties. I See, I wouldn't want to eat them, though, because they've been sort of fiddled with. But they look beautiful, though. They might look nice, but it must be grossly unhygienic. I, I suppose it would be, actually. It, it, and, but at the time it takes it to make these, some of the larger ones can take up to 150 hours of work. I, I still wouldn't want to eat it at the end of it. It's just been sort of left out it has but remember that they did that with that cheese wheel from that victorian factory oh, a while yes. back yeah. and that travelled all the way from that's true was it dorset or somerset um, or something west pennard in i think at somerset or somewhere like mm. that yeah but and did they eat that cheese wheel at the end i, I don't know i think i, I presumed that it was probably sort of broken up and given out to people so yeah mm. like because they do that with royal wedding cakes don't they, they mm. you can sort of buy slices of them or, or they sort of hand them out to people Ooh, i don't know but how many slices are they going to give out <laughs> how big's the, big the wedding cake i'll just put place your order online <laughs> no you slice. can buy like slices of like edward the eighth's wedding cake on online and stuff no you can't i think i've dreamt this i thought you could buy like old slices of wedding cake how would it survive there's an episode that of long? seinfeld where <laughs> Elaine well, eats. <laughs> well i want to I, well there you go paul there's I your answer basing, to that one yeah i may be basing my fact on episodes of seinfeld so what's your good feeling on the sarah kaufman the cheese lady and her so top is, hat made of cheese right is the fact that this woman just exists yes yeah, all, all of this does does this exist or it, was I hung over this morning and cobbled, <laughs> cobbled together something to do with cheese? Um, it sounds plausible. The top hat made of cheese. <laughs> okay. Did I go too far? I, I, so she's called Sarah Coleman. This is in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I know, is a big dairy state. Hence the cheese head nickname. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that, that if, the, if you've made this woman up, I imagine that that job at least exists. Mm. Because there, there will be cause for that at some point and full time you can make a living off this full time yeah well people are like ice sculptors and things mm-hmm. so i suppose it makes sense that you can do it with cheese as well i suppose if after this fact the podcast is going to go down the can so <laughs> <laughs> we could probably start our own cheese cheese sculpting business to make up yeah slightly more hygienic than what she called sarah kaufman sarah kaufman but yeah it sounds like the sort of eccentric thing a top hat <laughs> that's sort of sticking in my head a little bit I, that sounds this could be completely true what's your gut guess um, my gut is saying that it's true but my head is saying that you've made this up mm. and I don't know which one to go with I'm going to say that oh I don't know what to do <laughs> um, I'm going to say that this is true final answer yes this is true this woman is a cheese sculptor. And she walks around with a cheese top hat. I don't think she walks around <laughs> with a cheese top hat, but I think she possibly owns one. Yes. You are correct. Yes. It is true. 
Oh wow! Well. She's a, she's a, seems like a really lovely lady. Like when I was on, I was on her website, I, 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 I thought you were going to say you were on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose for the other days, can I use you as a cheese fan? We've got a massive listenership of seventeen people. You're going to get You're going to get inundated with orders for cheese sculptures. <laughs> wow! Yeah, so completely well, true. Fair play to you, Sarah Kaufman. Mm. Uh, have you seen any of these sculptures? Yeah, there's loads of them on our website. Are they good? Them. Yeah, they're really good. Well, hey, maybe we should commission one. Yeah, we should, I think. Especially the top hat. I'd take one of those any day. I'll, I'll get a cheese bowler hat. Right. Okay, my first fact. Actually, all, all the ones I've got today are kind of like bizarre, kind of not adventure stories, but kind of like bizarre, kind of... Um, you're, you're really setting this up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not like sort of facts as such. They're just sort of bizarre stories about weird things that people did. Oh, so it's your of... autobiography then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so... Um, This story begins on uh, the 19th of February, 1825. Mm -hmm. And there was an Indiaman ship called the Kent was launched um, onto the River Thames and it was sailing to Bengal in India. Uh, So it comes out of the Thames, goes around through the English Channel down south, heading kind of around the bottom tip of Africa, Mm -hmm. gets into the Bay of Biscay between France and Spain and a huge storm blows in. And on the 1st of March, so it's only been at sea for sort of, well, barely two weeks, a crewman went down in the middle of this storm to check on the holes and he noticed that um, a barrel of spirits that they were uh, transporting across had fallen over, so Mm -hmm. there was sort of alcohol lying around everywhere. So while he was trying to reattach this barrel so that it didn't go rolling around, uh, he dropped the lantern that he was holding ignited all the alcohol and the ship was ablaze okay <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's where this sort of story opens on board the ship was a man named major duncan mcgregor right <laughs> you now you, you have this thing about names sounding <laughs> made up <laughs> like the last one was it somebody, what did he call the last guy that's james Scottish, mcleod james mcleod yeah i can't believe i fell for that one <laughs> this this sounds as bad okay but duncan do go McGregor, on so we've yeah. got we've got Duncan McStereotype. <laughs> yeah, Duncan McScottish stereotype is on board uh, with his family. And they hear the word that the ship is ablaze. They're kind of in the middle of nowhere. So in desperation, he writes a note and he writes, The ship Kent, which was the name of the ship, is on fire. Elizabeth, Joanna and myself, Elizabeth was his wife, Joanna was his daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and myself, commit our spirits into the hands of our blessed Redeemer. And he signed the note, wrote a, l- a little bit more, but he signed the note. Uh, put it in a bottle, mm-hmm. uh, secured the bottle, and they just sort of basically sat and waited to find out, find <laughs> out what would to die. find out what would happen to them. <laughs> As it happens, what happened to them was that a passing ship spotted that they were in trouble, that this ship was on fire, uh, went across, rescued everybody, and they all survived. While they were sailing away, the ship blew up into hundreds of pieces, mm. scatters all of this debris across the sea, but everyone gets out alive. Mm. Lovely, happy story. Slightly happy, apart from the fact that the ship burnt down. Anyway, <laughs> um, fast forward 18 months later, mm-hmm. and someone is uh, sat at the beach at a place called Bathsheba in Barbados, mm-hmm. and suddenly he notices a little bottle bobbing around in the surf, all covered in barnacles and seaweed. See where stuff. this is yeah. going. Picks the bottle up, sees that there's something inside, smashes the bottle, gets the note out, and it's this guy's note. So he goes, oh, this is unusual, takes it back to his employer, who happens to be Duncan McGregor. No. Yeah. 
so he had been he'd found his way to India, had worked in India, then was reassigned to a position in Barbados and had been working there as now Lieutenant Colonel McGregor, not Major McGregor, of the 93rd Highlanders. Mm. Uh, so he was working out there, and this guy goes up and goes, oh, look, I've just found this note. And he goes, well, blow me down <laughs> 4,000 <laughs> miles away. <laughs> and 18 months ago, I wrote that note and left it on the table in my cabin, and now look mm. where it is. Right. There's a lot of angles I'm going to go in on this one. Okay. Because first thought mm-hmm. is you're immediately appealing to my love of schmaltzy, <laughs> schmaltzy, lovely stories like this. And yes. I go, oh, isn't that such a nice story? Yeah. Which you've got me on a couple of times where yes. I said, oh, that's a lovely story. It's been a complete BS. <laughs> yes. Um, so it was an Indiaman. So it was he. Yes. In, is, are they just ships used by the Dutch East Indies? Not just the Dutch East Indies. The East India Company. The East India Company. Um, oh, I don't know. Is that why they were called? Maybe that's why they were called Indiaman. I don't know. I'm guessing that it probably is. Yeah. It's not something I, I'm too... route to India. Something I'm too up on is the East India Company, to be honest. Other than what <laughs> I've know. gleaned from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> My knowledge of the East, Ind- East India Company kind of begins and ends with knowing that it existed. Exactly. So yeah. we'll, we'll move on from yeah. that part. I was going to ask why if they was was it common for families to go over on these trade ships? I'm guessing that it would have been. Yes, he was quite high up in the army and he'd been mm. positioned out in Bengal, so he was going to be out there for quite a while. Mm. So it sort of made sense for him to take his family with him. It was mm. early 1800s, so it sort of it was the Raj kind of working. I was going to say, like, I'm sure that, like the British first turned up in India sometime in the late 1700s. Yeah, but I don't know how much of India they controlled no, by 1820. I don't. 1825, I think... this was. There was certainly a, a sort of precedent for taking your family out with you if you were right. So high up in the army. I don't know enough about the English occupation of India mm. to interrogate mm-hmm. those sort of areas. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the sea currents, though, mm-hmm. like what currents carried it over to Barbados? Oh, I don't know. I mean, from Bay of Biscay, yeah, it's, it's kind of quite sharply southwest, I mm. think, to Barbados. Is it not the Gulf Stream goes the other way, or am I just making that up? No, Gulf, Gulf Stream This is your A-level goes, geography coming know, back A-level in. A-level geography, yeah. Gulf Stream goes from sort of up the east coast of America and then across the North Atlantic. So would that carry bottles back to our side? I yes, I think it probably does. Yeah, mm. I'm sure I've read a story of someone finding something on the west coast of Ireland mm. that had come from North America. Okay, so that's the second point. I can't interrogate because we don't know enough we about don't know Atlantic enough about currents. Sea currents, no. <laughs> is the Gulf Stream a sea current as well as a, an a, air, current. air current? I don't know. There's a thing called the North Atlantic Drift. We should call this the Paul and Anthony Ignorant Podcast. <laughs> yeah. The Paul See, and Anthony Know Nothing Podcast. See, when I wrote this, I thought you'd maybe interrogate like how bizarre a story it was, not my knowledge of sea currents. <laughs> oh, don't forget Occupation of India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were the East India Company the only people who used Indiaman ships? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Please get in touch, anybody. Let us know. Right. Ah, I'm leaning towards BS because... Yeah, because can, of the name. Because of the name. But then again, I think because you've used these ridiculous names and smarty stories a couple of times now, mm. I think you've finally gone for a real one. Oh, so you've got to think about the coincidence more than anything. Here's another thing, actually, another question. So he went to India, but he was mm-hmm. posted to the Caribbean 18 months later. Mm. That's that's a very quick turnaround. Why was he Why was he posted so quickly? I don't know. I thought I, I thought like their military stints lasted for years. Yeah. I don't know. I, actually, I do know that in India, I think a tour of duty was only like a couple of seasons. That might mm. not be right, but I know I, I I know this because I've just been writing about the history of the word Dulali. 
Mm. Um, which comes from Deol Alley in Western India. And I know that people used to go berserk waiting for transport home, and their tour of duty lasted like half a year, I think, mm. or a year at most. I think it's something I should know because my granddad was in the army and he served in India. Oh, really? Um, before the war as well. But I have no idea <laughs> how long the stints were that he used See, to spend over there. When he was telling you all his war stories when you were a kid, you, you were just like, I'm too busy watching Sooty. <laughs> Sorry, Sudi and Sweep take president. <laughs> right. Yeah, but ah. I, I know that they used to only do transport back during the winter months because it was too hot, I think. No, it was the monsoon season. You couldn't travel in the sort of monsoon typhoon season. Um, so there was only transport home for half a year. So people used to end up kind of stranded for six months. And that's why people used to go berserk in that camp. So, yeah, the tour of duty, I don't know how long it was, but I know that there was sort of regular... So he's just a military officer and he was basically just in a garrison force yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Plus, of course, he has been promoted by this point, so perhaps... Why did the, he get promoted as well? I don't know. I don't know that, but I know that he went from being a major when he was sent to Bengal and then by the time he was in Barbados, he was a lieutenant colonel. So maybe the mm. change of location went with the promotion. I don't mm. know. Right. Oh, I'm so torn on this one. I'm just going to go for it and say it's true. Okay. That's my gut. Final answer? Oh, if you've got me again on another stupid name... <laughs> Duncan McGregor. That's <laughs> it sounds so made up. Okay. Right, okay, true. Final answer? Yes. That story mm. is completely true. Ah, thank God. Yeah, completely true. I thought that was amazing. It actually is. A, yeah. That's an interesting story. I mean, though. yeah, the chances of it sort of landing on the beach. And the fact they came back to him To as him, well, yeah. yeah. He, apparently, there was a quote that I read while I was reading up on this story. I think he said that it was like the bottle had found him. It, it was mm. sort of like it had come home to him. But uh, yeah, no, it was verified. He died in 1881 and the note kind of passed into the possession of his son and his son kind of, I think I it's... he had a good innings, that fella, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, 1881, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's sort of, it has been sort of verified in kind of the annals of the naval history that it is, yeah, it's completely true. Oh, well, that's, it's finally nice to get a, a true schmaltzy yeah. story for us. How I'm, like, what, that coincidence is ridiculous, though. That's insane. Like, he didn't even want to throw the bottle overboard. It, the, the fact <laughs> that the ship... left it. the fact that the ship blew up. <laughs> the fact that he's, the ship's on fire, he's just calmly right. Oh, just a second, dear. The ship's on fire. I need to, I need to write a note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, um... Yeah, it's a, uh, and yeah. the fact that there was another ship just on its way over... It? Yeah, it was a brig, a passing brig that rescued everybody. Now, we've, we've gone back into our knowledge of ships again, Paul. Yeah, I'm using that word like I know what a brig looks like. Hey, I, I, the only other ships I know are sloops. A single-masted vessel, I believe. Oh, look at this. Look at us go. And I think that's a Dutch word. A frigate. A frigate, yes. That happened. That's, that is a ship. That happened. That is, that is a <laughs> ship that happened. Tune in next week for more names of ships. <laughs> the next half hour of this podcast is Anthony naming types of ships and me agreeing that they once existed. <laughs> Such entertainment. On to the next fact. I mean, fact about ships. <laughs> right, one all. Yeah. I think I've noticed why we, I think we might draw so much on this. I think it's the inherent dangers of a game where every answer is a 50-50. <laughs> it tends to even out into yeah, to that, constant yes. draws. That is a good point. There's no skill from either of us on this. No, I, I don't think there's very these much facts, skill in this at all. Because these facts are so difficult to, to yeah. interrogate sometimes, unless you really know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's true. But my next one, um, debating doing the Shakespeare fact... Mm-hmm. Or I'm thinking of like saving it 
is like my my piece de resistance <laughs> right at the I, end. I it's, kind of feel like you're maybe overragging my Shakespeare knowledge slightly. <laughs> it's not even that great of a fact. <laughs> it's just Shakespeare's like... first name was William. <laughs> but yes, it was Jeff. No, I'm going to save it for last. Oh, right. Okay. That gives so, me just enough time to go and read up on Shakespeare. So instead, I'm going to take you to the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, you and your Romans. <laughs> Every time. It's, not, it's the Holy Roman Empire. Right, okay. So kind of Germany, Central Europe. Right. Um, From around the year 800-ish to... Actually, do you know when the Holy Roman Empire ended and who ended it? Now, Constantine. Was he the first... You're, you're so way off. <laughs> what was he called? I, I know if, it's like pub quiz trivia who was the last emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. No. It was, no, is it not that at all? No, to be you're, fair, you're, I think you're thinking of the split between the Eastern and the Western Roman uh, Empires. This is long after the Roman Empire. Constantine. Constantine was a Roman emperor. Oh, an actual Roman emperor. Yes, he founded Constantinople, which See, is now yeah. modern day Istanbul. Oh, but the, whole, right. the Holy, Holy Roman, Roman Empire, Empire was. From the year 800 AD to about 1806. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. It lasted that long. Yeah, it was good 1,200 years. No, 1,000 years. Thousand, there, so. And I, I might not know that, but I know that 1,800 minus 800 <laughs> is 1,000, not 1,200. I told you I was going to have a nightmare today with this <laughs> kind of hangover. But yeah, because the, the Holy Roman Empire kind of came from the genesis of Charles the Great. You know Charlemagne. Charlemagne, yes. yes oh, that's that's the name that I meant. Charlemagne, not Constantine. Wow. <laughs> Charlemagne, yeah. I should just do history every fact. So was Charlemagne the first Holy Roman Emperor? Um, Kind of. He's the father of the Holy of Roman the Holy Empire. Roman as Emperor, right. that, yeah, that, now, yeah. you won't believe me, but that is actually the name that I was thinking of, not Constantine. Sure it was, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> sure it was. One of them was the Holy Roman Emperor and the other one was that film with Keanu Reeves in it. Mm. But... The Holy Roman Empire wasn't like a traditional empire in the sense that there was one ruler and he had an iron fist rule over everything. A lot of the states in the Holy Roman Empire had a lot of independence. There were hundreds of separate little states, um, city-states. There was all sorts going on in this one. It was a very loose empire, Mm. which is probably why it lasted so long. Mm. And we're going to go to parts of the Netherlands and Holland to the rule of Forrest IV. Forest. Forest. Uh, F-O-R-I-S. Okay. Forest w- the Gump. <laughs> yes. For- we're going to go to Forest Gump, <laughs> who was the Count of Holland from 1222 okay. to 1234. And his territory kind of overlapped with parts of northern Germany. Like I said, it was a very loose right, okay. empire and... Often the vassals would fight each other a lot. I don't know very much about this, obviously, but I remember that the borders changed like pretty much every oh, day. Oh, constantly. Yeah. And the, the capital of the Holy Roman Empire was all over the place. I think mm. it was in Vienna, then it was Prague, and it was a few other places. Right. It just, it depended on who was the emperor. Because I think a lot of it was elective. They would elect whichever emperor yes. they wanted. But um, Forrest IV took part in a crusade against other Christians. Okay. But he didn't lead the crusade. It was started by his neighbour near Bremen. But when you said neighbour, I literally meant, I thought you meant like the man next door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he lived in a terrace house in Holland. <laughs> so he's like his national neighbour. Yeah, so you know what, let's go on a crusade against these peasants. <laughs> but there was basically a bunch of peasants in the Steddinger area okay. um, north of Bremen. And these peasants, they didn't, they were really independent themselves. They didn't really listen to the rule of their local count. They were kind of on the edge of declaring independence. So the count of that region, he asked the Pope to excommunicate them so he could then declare a holy war on them. Oh, right. Okay. 
So these peasants didn't like feudal rule. They were mm-hmm. getting their own little republic going, which would have been obviously a nightmare. You can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. So the Pope's like, yeah, whatever, excommunicate them. Mm-hmm. Do what you want with them. Yeah. So they started this crusade against these peasants. But the interesting thing about Forrest IV is he rode into battle on his favourite donkey. <laughs> okay. Now... Going up against other knights on a donkey, you'd imagine uh-huh. that would be quite dangerous. Yes. But going up against a peasant army, he was perfectly fine because the donkeys can run up to 43 miles an hour. What? Yeah. Because he, uh, he was very fond of donkeys when he, he grew up. Uh, he would often visit the stables as a child. Mm-hmm. He thought they were quite noble animals and he just he really took a liking to donkeys. He would go on donkey rides as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what happens when you get hereditary... Yes, that's true. It's a fairly shallow gene pool at exactly. the top of some of these things. Exactly. So he took off to this holy war on a donkey. Um, obviously, the peasants lost and they were... Re- the, peasants lo- the peasants lost? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Against the charge of a donkey. Uh-huh. But the mistake Forrest made was several years after the holy war, in the spring of 1234, he went to a tournament in Corby in France and he took, obviously, his donkey with mm-hmm. him. And he didn't think that this would be a hindrance to him at all. Mm -hmm. So he rode his donkey into the joust and was killed. Oh, he took a donkey into a joust? Yeah, he took took his pet donkey, well, his mounted, armoured donkey into a joust and was killed at that tournament. Wow. So shortly after his great heroics during the Holy War. Well, this is this story just kind of kept blossoming into stranger and stranger <laughs> things. Okay, so um, to recap. Yes. Early 1200s. Yes. In and around kind of what is now the Netherlands. Yes, Netherlands, Holland, North Bremen in Germany. Now. Okay, you've got this sort of little faction of peasants kind of sticking two fingers up at the ruling yeah they the peasants accused the lord and his men of like robbing from people uh, right. raping local people and they said oh, well right, we're okay. not we're not standing for this we're, so we're going it alone this is what you're going to do about it right Come so kill us. forrest got in touch with the pope and said excommunicate these people actually it was it was the duke or count near the steadinger area forrest just joined in because he was a neighbor oh right okay so oh yes, when, yes when the holy war was called the the other vassals of the holy roman empire thought ah we'll just jump in on we'll this. jump in okay some prestige right okay so the they're excommunicated the surrounding states kind of come to the rallying cry and put this sort of uprising down mm. and forrest does it on a donkey yes Right. Okay. And then some years later, enters his donkey into a jousting contest in France. Yes. And is killed. So yes. he's riding his donkey full pelt at presumably a knight on like a stallion. Yes. Like, could he not? Obviously, that's not going to go well. What was he expecting? He Did just... the donkey survive? It doesn't say. <laughs> what? Do you know what the donkey was called? It doesn't say either. Kong? <laughs> Don- donkey Kong. <laughs> Yeah, that was him. <laughs> right, okay. I hate this game. <laughs> because you could so totally have made this up. But it's medieval Europe. Anything went on in medieval <laughs> Europe. It's a time I would love to go back and visit. Just <laughs> obviously not to live there. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you go back long enough. You're probably related to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love donkeys? A donkey. I see. I can so see you making this up, but I can also so see this being completely true. Mm. He rode a donkey into battle and died riding a donkey into a joust. 
Mm. There's all these little details, like the whole, it was the neighbour that that was having the rebellion, not him. Mm. That all makes me think that this is true. I think it was the, uh, the Archbishop of Bremen. He was kind of the local ruler. Right. So it was, him that was, it was him that was having the problem. Yeah, and he's the one who went to the Pope and said, right. hey, you've got to excommunicate these people for right. us. Right. And this was back in the day where the Pope was just sort of, I whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They, I think it was the char- they wanted to charge the peasants of heresy mm. just because they didn't want to pay their tithes. Right. So that's clearly heretical. Yeah. Okay. See, that all sounds very plausible. Donkey though, and then to be killed on a joust mm. on a donkey. Oh, I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> um, I can see me getting this wrong, but I'm gonna say that that is. Oh, I'm gonna say that that's true. Final answer. Yeah, that is BS. Oh! who rides on a donkey? <laughs> <laughs> can you picture it? How did you even get a donkey to charge Paul? <laughs> No. So, uh, see, now I look like a complete <laughs> doofus. Uh, of course, you can't ride a donkey in a battle, but you dress that fact up so. Uh, and a donkey the... in a joust. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously not. The, like, the joust would be at different heights. Uh, they were, the crusade did happen, though. But not on a donkey. Not on a donkey. The peasants did rebel. They didn't like. See, this the is the thing. Cash. You dressed this up so well. Mm. Of course you can't do it on a donkey, but... <laughs> Did he even exist, this forest? Yeah, Forrest IV existed. I, <sighs> he was killed at a joust, though. Oh, just not on a donkey. Not on a donkey. He was... Yeah. Oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> right. Too one to me. Oh, that, that's that is one of the worst defeats so far in this podcast. <laughs> I can't believe that. That's when I said that pigs can drive cars. <laughs> I think we might have a new winner here. <laughs> Well, that's oh. good, though, right? I'll just go on the next fact. I'll just ride my donkey home. I'll just, uh... <laughs> right. Well, following that absolute humiliation. <laughs> okay, so my next sort of tale of adventure today is about a guy called Albert Gunter. Right. Is this made up? <laughs> <laughs> you, you ready to decide yet? It's BS. Um, right, move on. And the story is about a double-decker bus mm-hmm. that jumped the gap in Tower Bridge. Mm, okay. okay. See where this is going. Um, right. This is on the, the 30th of December, 1952. This happened, okay? Albert Gunter was the driver of the number 78 bus. Mm-hmm. So he's driving from North London into Shoreditch. Um, and he was driving across Tower Bridge and he realised that the road was rising up in front of him. So he's got two choices. Either you slam the brakes on and skid into the river or you slam the accelerator on. <laughs> a la James Bond. <laughs> um, so, of course, he slammed the accelerator on. Mm-hmm. The bus uh, sped up the ramp, jumped about six foot across the gap because mm-hmm. the, the two sides of the bridge were opening up mm-hmm. uh, landed safely on the other side comes crashing down mm-hmm. uh, broke the suspension in the bus <laughs> understandably they're not really known for their strong <laughs> no. suspension yeah, yeah true there's 20 passengers on board um, 10 of them had to be taken to hospital the conductor mm-hmm. broke his leg and uh, there was a young boy uh, on board who fractured his collarbone but everyone survived and they were the, the two kind of worst injuries mm. if you like out of everyone there and uh, you might think like you know why didn't you notice the warning lights going off and mm. why did you drive across <laughs> the gap Surely in Tower if, Bridge if he had time to speed up if he 
breaks. But maybe it would just skid over the gap and fall into the river. Mm, could do. Um, anyway, sorry. So uh, you'd think, you know, maybe this is kind of driver error, but it was classed as an, awa- an act of bravery. And he was, really? he was rewarded. <laughs> Not an act of stupidity. <laughs> Do you know what he was rewarded with? Uh, being fired from a bus driver job. <laughs> he was rewarded with a day off <laughs> and uh, £10, which in oh. the 1950s was quite a bit. And he was also uh, given £35. By, to never drive a bus again. <laughs> by the City of London. Yeah, so that was that. They think probably what happened was that there was a fault with the lights uh, at the start of the bridge. The lights hadn't been changed to red. Um, rather than green so he'd driven through quite correctly but the, there's a sort of theory now that actually it wasn't a sort of split second decision I'm going to accelerate he just he was planning to do this all along yeah it they? probably happened t- too quickly for him to kind of really react to it so he was literally just driving and he drove over the gap it wasn't a sort of circus jump like <laughs> well I'm going to slam the accelerator on and make sure this you know Dukes mm. of Hazard style <laughs> jump goes ahead um, so there's a set of questions about how kind of how much of an act of bravery it was or whether he actually realised what he'd done. But uh, the fact is that um, the bus completed the jump, landed safely the other side. It reminds me of how you drive, actually, Paul. <laughs> just... So, yeah, I wouldn't do this as an accident. I would <laughs> think that that was a perfectly just normal thing to the do. The other day, as an example, when we came, you were driving and you took us to a roundabout that you didn't think was a roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, is this my lane? I'll, just, I'll not slow down. Well, I just approach everything, presuming I've got right of way. <laughs> this, yeah. this has a real ring of believability to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the guy's name again? Albert Gunter. I'm so paranoid about the names you come up with on this. Mm-hmm. Albert Gunther. Yeah. So is Gunther obviously sounds like a German name, maybe? Uh, yes, I'm guessing it would be, yeah. So it did, was... You're going to ask if I know about the family heritage of <laughs> Albert Gunther. No, I don't. <laughs> he happened to have a German surname. I have the worst interrogation <laughs> questions. <laughs> like, I've maybe prepped on, like, the history of Tower Bridge, but not on the, the family history so of the how, bus driver. How wide is the gap when the bridge is fully open? Do, do the two sides of the bridge lift up, like, to 45 degrees or something, then drop back down? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so they don't just sort of ease up. They do because go completely up. fit any ships through then. You could go, get through the gap. <laughs> For the sake of... <laughs> What ships do you think they're taking that far into London? It's not like the QE2's going down there. I'm sorry, I don't have very good engineering and nautical knowledge, Paul. (laughs) Well, we established that in the first fact. (laughs) Oh, I can name another ship. (laughs) Actually, I can't. I think I've done. Frigate was my last one. Right, so how much was the gap that the bus had to make over? They think it was about six foot. Mm. Um, so by the time he sort of realised that it had opened, yeah, it was about six foot that it that it managed to jump. And if you think a bus is probably about, I don't know, maybe 15 foot long, mm. 20 foot long, something like that. Um, That's it. Compared to the size of the bus, it's probably not that big. Mm. So this isn't, like I say, this isn't the sort of <laughs> Dukes of Hazards. Like, he did. Let's absolutely floor this. It wasn't at a 45 degree angle. No. It was floored it. <laughs> went no. shooting up. It was probably sort of more kind of quite a, a, just a sort of bumpy crawl across from one side to the other. This feels very quaint 1950s, but this sounds like something you could have easily made up yourself. <laughs> like you've just sat there. Sat there, watched an episode of Dukes of Hazards. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts. You know what? I'm going to say this is true. Okay. Final answer? Yeah. Albert Gunter? Yeah. You got me on another name. Final answer? Yes. 
completely true. Yes. <laughs> yeah, completely true. Um, yeah, and he has like some bonus facts. Ooh, um, he became like a bit of a local celebrity after this. Like mm. he was the guy that got this bus across the gap. So his workmates began to call him Parachute Gunter. Really struggling with that. Yeah. And uh, in July 1953, he was asked to judge a driving competition around Hyde well, Park. Well, really got the wrong man for the yeah. job. Um, but the, a very—I know you like your little touching anecdotes I do, I and do. things. There was a lady on the bus when it made the jump, and she was called um, May Walsham. Mm-hmm. And after this happened, she got uh, a terrible fear of travelling by public transport. Mm. So she thought the only way to kind of get over this fear would be... To jump the bridge again? <laughs> would be <laughs> to do the same bus with the same driver again. So mm. she got on the number 78. Gunther happened to be driving. She mm. drove across the bridge, got off and kind of solved her fear of public oh. transport. And two weeks after that, she got married and the bus driver was the best man. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's, see, that's And that's nice. completely true. That's, yeah. a, that's a lovely little story. Yeah. So, I yeah. like that. Completely true. No ridiculous comedy ending. No. <laughs> no. And true for once. <laughs> for once. <laughs> so. Okay. This is it. Yeah. Uh, see, now this is putting pressure on me more than you here because I'm 3-1 down. The thing is, I've got a lot of Shakespeare facts that you probably will know, and but people, other listeners might not know. So I thought I'll pepper this one mm-hmm. with lots of nice little Shakespeare facts. Okay. Just to ease you in before I get... Because if you knew the last fact, and it would just be like a, a one minute yes. <laughs> segment. Yeah, true. Or unless it was a lie and you didn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Who knows what I'm up to today? I'd love it. Absolutely love it if you like Googled Shakespeare facts and without realising got this off Haggard Hawks. <laughs> 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 I would still be laughing this time next week. Oh, God. If this is our final <laughs> Right, okay. So, this is easy. We're into some facts about Shakespeare. You probably know this one. Um, there are about 80 different spelling variations of his name. Yes. Um, some from William Shaper, William Shaxbird, William mm-hmm. Shack. Yes. So was he was he not a very good speller and writer? Actually? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, back then there wasn't a sort of standard English, mm. so you could kind of do whatever you want, and especially sort of names and signatures and things, you could um, truncate them however you wanted. Oh, I might start doing that with my name. <laughs> I quite like uh, Shaxbird, though. I like Shaxbird. I've never heard that one before. That's interesting. Yeah, but about eighty variations of it anyway. Um, as you also know, he died on his birthday. He did, um, 1616. Face fell into the cake as he went down. Uh, <laughs> 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 that could be speculation. Actually, we don't, don't know whether know. it was his birthday. It was probably the day he was baptised. That's, uh, that's another point I was going to raise as mm. well. That's, it's, it might be a common misconception that he died yeah. on his birthday. It's, and he's, it's St George's Day, mm. which sounds a little bit too... It's kind of like, let's make him a bit of a national hero and mm. say that his birthday was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <such a> <laughs> let's just shoehorn everything in. To, is it 22nd? 23rd of April? 3rd of April, yeah. Uh, this, I think this one I did get from Haggard Hawks. Mm-hmm. It was when the Globe Theatre burnt down. Yes. and um, This is one of my favourite facts. It is. This is why I put this one in there as well. And No one was hurt except a man whose pants was on fire. Yeah. <laughs> there was a sort of... The, the fire was started by a cannon in the roof. They used to fire it as soon as anyone important came on the stage. Mm. And it set fire to the roof. And I think it was the cannon operator 
whose trousers <laughs> caught fire. <laughs> they put it out with a bottle of beer. Yeah, he just poured <laughs> beer on it. I love the past. Yes, <laughs> it's how like... to deal with the crisis. Pour beer on your burning trousers. Um, another fact, there were three versions of Hamlet that survive. Oh, no, that's interesting. Oh, bollocks, I should have used this one. <laughs> <laughs> I th- yeah, I do know that there's lots of the, our variations of they, the plays. They vary so much in length. Like one of them is 2,200 lines, one of them is 3,800 lines, mm. uh, one of them is 3,500 lines. So he wrote a lot of versions of them, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they don't know quite which one Shakespeare intended to be. This yeah. is the definitive Hamlet. Yes. Yeah. I quite like Hamlet, actually. And I'm not a big Shakespeare fan in general. No, Hamlet's uh, good. Yeah. Uh... Hamlet's good. <laughs> the, the SCBS review of Shakespeare. Yeah, Hamlet's good. <laughs> from, like a, from a linguist and author. <laughs> yeah. Hamlet's good. Yeah. As if we're producing like the greatest work of art ever. Yeah, Hamlet's all right, but have you heard Yes of Yes? <laughs> God. Um, and also another fact, several moons of Uranus are named after Shakespeare characters. Yes. Uh, Titania, Oberon and Puck from yeah. Summer Night's Dream. Okay, so you've peppered this with... Peppered this with, with fun and interesting facts. Yeah. Uh, I knew you'd know all of these. My confidence is slightly built by the fact that I knew most of those. Right, so this is it. Okay, okay. Have I made this one up? Or do you not know this one? Is it true? Is it false? <laughs> I have literally no idea what you're going to come I'm, out Not with that it. I'm padding this out <laughs> to, get, to get us over the hour or anything. So, you might know... William Shakespeare's works contain more than 600 references to various birds. Right. They vary from swans, doves, sparrows, turkeys, song, certain songbirds as well. Yeah. And in 1890 in America, there's a special name for people who like Shakespeare. They're called bardolators. Bardolators. Well, oh, I'm sorry. I got that pronunciation wrong. <laughs> and in America, there was a bardolator called Eugene Shifflin. And he had an idea that he wanted to bring every single bird mentioned in Shakespeare's works into America. Okay. And as part of the project, he released two flocks of 60 starlings in New York Central Park. And 120 years later, it's become the most invasive species driven many native birds to the brink of extinction in New York. Wow. And it was just his goal, because it's a very odd goal to bring all the birds of Shakespeare into America. That sounds like something someone would do. Mm. All of the starlings in America come from this plant. Yes. Okay. Anything that wasn't already in the US, he brought over. Okay. That, that's hundreds and hundreds of birds. And the, he was releasing these wild. Yeah, just say, hey, there we go. Because he wanted to make America more like the Bard's native homeland. Right, okay. What about like peacocks and things? Yeah, it's, he brought more. You can't just release a peacock in New York. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know the specifics of how he released them, but he would bring over all of these birds. In fact, there was one, um, like a, a songbird that was only mentioned once in Henry IV Part One. He even got that. Don't ask me what that is. <laughs> I was hoping you might know it, actually. But... <laughs> right, okay. Every single starling in America comes from this. I don't know if every single one does. Right. But... It was, I don't know if he succeeded in getting all of the birds over, but that was what he wanted to do. Right. That was his goal. I think this is true. Uh, that's, uh, it's with the Victorian eccentric <clears throat> thing, for mm. one. Yeah, there's this sort of resurgence in popularity of Shakespeare in the 1800s, which makes sense, because he kind of fell out of fashion after he died, mm. and everyone went very sort of Jacobean. And then it kind of took about another hundred years for him to kind of 
become the sort of Shakespeare we know today. So mm. that makes sense. Actually, on a side note, I was going to ask you about this. Um, I was reading this the other day. Um, I think someone commented something on Twitter that American accents are closer to original British accents. Shakespeare would sound better performed in American accents. Oh, is that, that's interesting. Is that, is that a thing? I know. Yes, that's probably quite accurate. Yeah. Because received pronunciation, British English, yeah. that we know, didn't really come in until... Was it the 1700s we started? The, the queen, modern the period. Yes. Yeah. Because it's like that whole thing. The, I mean, I don't want to get on my linguistics high horse here, but there's the great vowel shift, which is mm. like our accents are probably closer to what Anglo-Saxon was. Mm. So we would we have quite short vowels, mm. whereas more southern accents are, are a sort of later development. Um, so we're kind of close to that. So it would kind of make sense that, yeah, kind of 1500s, 1600s-ish, the accents that kind of went across to the States mm. in isolation were probably closer to what Shakespeare sounded like. And then we had the kind of early modernist kind of revival over here that kind of changed things. David Crystal's son, Ben Crystal, who follows Haggard Hawks on Twitter and is Woo! well worth following. <laughs> um, yeah, he's involved in a project of, of recording Shakespeare and performing Shakespeare in what it would have sounded like in the I see that sort of thing really interests us. Yeah, it's you should like, track that down. Yeah, it's like videos like how did the Romans speak Latin is another thing I'd love to know. Oh. Never really got like a definitive answer on YouTube. Not That's that interesting. I've probably spread my research outside of YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why you don't know the answer. <laughs> but yeah, so that was a side note anyway. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. So on the fact, on the birds, are you... you uh, yeah. Is that your final answer? I think this is true. Uh, yeah. The, the Victorian Shakespeare revival, this mm. is, sounds like a ludicrous Victorian project. The thing that's sticking out is whether every single... Uh, the invasive species came from this. Mm. I'm not so sure about that, but I think, yeah, I think this is true. Something about this is is ringing very, very true with me. Final answer? Yes. I hate that my entire <laughs> Shakespeare knowledge is on the line it's, here. At least it's not a doggy riding into battle. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yes. <laughs> That's good. I was terrified you'd already know that. that it, there is really... something about that very distantly ringing a bell, but... I, I wouldn't have said that it was every bird in Shakespeare. I, th I don't know if he was successful getting all of them over, but right. he really, it was it was his life goal to introduce every, every bird. bird. I don't know why the birds he picked specifically, but and to, not the, other animals. Yeah, the odd thing is that he released them. Like, yeah. he could sort of just get a huge aviary and just be like, they're all in there, go and visit it and kind of charge people. I was going to say, if he's rich and eccentric enough to, yeah. to bring over 600 species of birds. Yeah. Then, you know, at least let, guarantee that you can go and see them. <laughs> not, not just like, oh, yeah, you know, like goldfinch? Yeah, it's yeah. like 200 feet in the air. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> and on that note, we'll go to your final fact, Paul. Excellent. It's 3-2 to you. So, the, again, we're playing for a draw. <laughs> Again, we go back to the, the that 50-50s chance. <laughs> we need to start doing like seven facts in an episode or something. So we get yeah, a guaranteed right. winner every time. Yeah. No, but okay. I'm I'm gonna play it with another one of my strengths here, which is classical music. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna go. We've done a rack man enough fact before. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're gonna go to my absolute all-time favorite composer for a fact. Ooh. Okay. Do you, this is interesting. Do you know who it is? I don't know. We know each other really well, but we never talk about this. I think we've known each other what, 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know who my favourite composer is? <laughs> is it um, Wiz Khalifa? 
<laughs> it's my favorite classical composer is Wiz Khalifa. Uh, it's J.S. Bach we're going to be ah, talking about. I think I did know that. Yeah, Johann Sebastian. So, um, some facts about Bach, well, a little bit of background about Bach before we get on to the main fact here, which I think you'll enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in Eisenach in 1685. Uh, he died in 1750 in uh, Leipzig, I think. In that time, he had dozens of children. And in the early 1700s, he held lots and lots of positions all across Germany related to his music and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And in 1708, was hired as an organist in the court of the Duke of Weimar. He was actually the what's called a concertmeister, which was basically... He had to write music for a concert every month that was put on in the palace and he would play... Every month? God. Yeah, he would play music <laughs> at the um, masses and all the rest of it. Uh, so it was kind of during this time that... Um, First of all, he started a family. It's children were born during this time. He got married during this time. And he kind of really started to establish his reputation as a, not just as a composer, but also as a, a musician, because he was an absolutely fantastic keyboardist. But it was also during this time that uh, he was called upon to help take part in a vigil to investigate a haunting <laughs> at the Duke's <laughs> palace. <laughs> Did he go with Derek Accord and uh, I, Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm slightly over-egging this story. <laughs> Was he on the next series of Ghost Hunters? It isn't actually quite as exciting um, as it sounds. Basically, while he was working at the palace which in, in Weimar, there was lots and lots of stories and there was a bit of a legend in this palace that um, the ghost of a, a woman who died would haunt this place. Yes, standard haunted house. Yeah. Um, and there are two versions of the story. One is that it was the daughter of the person who designed the palace who had died during its construction and she kind of returned to her father's work mm. to haunt it. Uh, or the another version of the story is that it was his the architect's lover and when the palace was being constructed, he killed her so that she wouldn't <laughs> she wouldn't reveal the affair and uh, buried her in the grounds and that's why it's haunted so there's all sorts of different explanations as to why this woman haunts it but um it was in yeah it was in 1715 um while bach was working there that the bishop of weimar decided to kind of put got a crew together yeah um, you got the, the ghost, were... you got those audio equipment thermal camera no there had been uh, reports of kind of odd things happening in the chapel and books being left open and that were then closed and doors and people hearing footsteps and all sorts of things. Uh, so he decided to have a vigil one night in the in the chapel. Mm. Um, and so lots and lots of staff from the Duke's court were involved. And Bach was asked to go because obviously he used to play in the chapel. Mm. So he was, we think, kind of in on this. And it wasn't a seance or it wasn't a sort of attempt to contact anyone. They literally, by the sounds of it, just sat in the church all Did night. Did they bring their proton pack? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the bishop would think kind of did some prayers and all sorts of things and it was kind of like right we'll sit here she'll materialise we'll know whether it's true or not Mm. all that happened was they basically sat in the church uh, nothing happened and they went home Uh, so (laughs) Bach wasn't particularly happy about this Mm. and it was kind of the beginning of the end of his time at uh, Weimar he kind of left under a bit of a cloud the following year and actually was imprisoned uh, for a month. Really? What yeah, for? on the orders of the Duke. I think he was kind of kicking up a bit of a fuss for, about... For doing badly at the sales. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the whole relationship with Weimar had soured and this was kind of like the tipping point. Mm. This was like... Should I, have I a... think the prison would be the tipping point. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than, I have to go to a vigil. Yeah, this was kind of like, you, you know, I have lots of things to go and do. I have a child at home and I have mm. a wife and you're getting me to 
sit in a church all night listening to the bishop say prayers to investigate something that isn't true. Mm. Um, so this we think was kind of what tipped him over the edge and he didn't enjoy the next year, was imprisoned for a year because <laughs> the relationship got so bad. Yeah, and he eventually left and um, he left in 1717. Um, but the reason that we know this, and this, this only kind of came out a couple of years ago, uh, was that his son, his second eldest son, Carl Philip Emmanuel Bach, who's actually now a very famous composer in his own right hmm. um his he wrote about this in a letter in 1760 and uh, mentioned that his father had been involved in that ghost business <laughs> at Weimar involved with the ghost busters <laughs> yeah so that there's this sort of fleeting reference to it in a letter that was written kind of 10 years after Bach died hmm. um so yeah this was uh, Bach JS Bach Ghostbuster. I think you, you spoke so passionately about that. Mm -hmm. I think this just this has to be true. This one, it's just like I don't think you would disrespect Bach so much as to make up a fact about him doing ghost vigils. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's like you're you're going down this thing of like the set with proton packs. It was literally like we'll sit kick, in the church, kick open the door, <laughs> yeah. we'll sit in the church and see if anything happens. Like the bishop swinging his staff, yeah, assaulting the earth. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't Throwing quite as holy water everywhere. <laughs> it wasn't quite as dramatic as that. It was, mm. um, yeah, the the sort of on the orders of the bishop and the orders of the duke, who was um, Ernest Augustus the first. Mm. of Weimar um, yeah it was his chapel that this Ooh, took place could be in. Holy Roman Empire Empire like there actually yeah probably would yeah, have been yeah. yeah I think he would have been a part early of it. 1700s I love the fact that dukes could just do whatever they wanted then and say oh I'm just yeah. going to put Bach in prison <laughs> yeah. he's, he's kicking up a bit of a fuss <laughs> put him in prison for a month I don't like him <laughs> no this has a very strong ring of truth to it I think I'm going to just go straight out with my gut and say this is completely true okay Mm -hmm. Final answer? Yep. That entire story mm -hmm. was BS. No! <laughs> really? Yeah. No, I made all that up. It's completely true that you worked at Weimar in those dates. Did he, he did go to prison. It's completely true. Yeah. I didn't know this about him. Yeah, he was in prison for a, a month just because he annoyed the Duke so much <laughs> towards the end of it. But I thought um, I'd make up this ridiculous story yes, in the middle <laughs> I did actually base this on a real story about um, Samuel Johnson who was involved in a, a ghost mm. hunt I don't know if you've heard about that no the Cock Lane ghost <laughs> <laughs> then the ghost the ghost was called Scrotum <laughs> even weirder than that the ghost was called Scratching Fanny <laughs> And, um, yeah, it was a, about a, a. You should have done that. <laughs> this is actually a really well-known fact. I've, 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 yeah, I've written I've about this before. Never heard of this. But Samuel Johnson was involved in this, and um, there was a, a supposedly a, a poltergeist on Cock Lane in London. This um, just uh, that it just sounds made up from the start. It's completely true. We yeah, Cock Lane to yeah. find Scratch and Fanny the ghost. <laughs> And, and like that, we get the explicit marker on iTunes. <laughs> no, that's that's kind of what I based on. That is quite a famous story. That um, mm. actually, the phrase "cockling ghost" is is like a, a kind of byword for a hoax because of because yeah. of the story. But yeah, Samuel Johnson was involved in that. But I thought that's quite a famous story. So who who else could I say was involved in a famous haunting? So I went with and, uh, any, anything Bach. classical music related. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all the classical music facts have you got them all wrong so I far? think so yeah the Rachmaninoff one about no I think I might have got that one right actually yeah, I think you might have done did Bach did he play the tune that goes no that's Mozart ah you that's see the there Turkish you go march. that's that's my favourite
favourite one. Oh, right. I'll, I'll do a fact about Mozart for you next there time. There you go. I like that song. It's not a song. I like, song. <laughs> I like that piece. See, I know the lingo. Get back to listening to Wiz Khalifa. <laughs> so what have we learned today, Paul? We've learned that we always play to a draw. Oh, God, again? It's three all again. <laughs> no, what have we learned? It's... Um, Oh, the message in a ball fact. Yeah, yeah that was a re- yeah, I really like that. We've one. learned that some coincidences really are ridiculous. Mm. And yeah, that there's some sort of current that goes yes, from... <laughs> yeah, from from the Bay of Biscay to the Caribbean. <laughs> exactly. We um, don't know what that current is. Yeah, and we've learned that goes... you can drive a double decker bus across Tower Bridge mm-hmm. and jump the gap in between and break someone's collarbone in the process. Yes, we've yeah. also learned that you think it's perfectly feasible to ride donkeys into battle. <laughs> I'm never going to live that down. <laughs> I'm going to bring this up so many times. <laughs> it's because it was dressed up in so many truths. <laughs> oh. And we also learned that there was a guy in America who tried to introduce all 600 species of birds. That's extraordinary. Mm. All of them. I want to know if he actually got all of them. I'm going to... I'll have to research that one some more to see if he did. Mm. But um, it, uh, when I was looking at it, it didn't say if he was successful or not. I mean, what if they were like... I mean, I, I know I know my Shakespeare, but I don't know if you ever mentioned, like, a condor or something. Can you imagine? Like, <laughs> in the middle what, of Central in Park. What play? I'll just release this. <laughs> what play would he mention a condor? Oh, and Hamlet uh, saw a condor. I don't know. Maybe The Winter's Tale. That's a pretty weird one. Comedy of Errors. That's pretty weird, no? We've also learned my knowledge of Shakespeare is trash. <laughs> <laughs> Your knowledge of Shakespeare is as bad as my knowledge of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Constantine. <laughs> so next time I'm going to do all Shakespeare facts and you're going to do all Constantine facts. <laughs> it's worth a go. Well, thanks for listening again, everybody. And hope to see you next week. 